The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, social, and political inequality. We hope you will listen. This week, first, we'll play from our April 2020 show when host Pat Bartholomew spoke with Cheryl Ferguson, a friend of Cameron Lamb. On December 3, 2019, 26-year-old Cameron Lamb was shot and killed by Kansas City police in his own backyard. At the time Pat spoke with Cheryl Ferguson, there was a lack of answers about what happened that night. Then, on November 19, 2020, Kansas City, Missouri Police Detective Eric J. DeVolcanaire was convicted of involuntary manslaughter in the 2019 shooting death of Cameron Lamb. Recently, DeVolcanaire's conviction in the killing of Cameron Lamb was upheld by an appeals court, and Eric DeVolcanaire is currently serving his sentence for the death of Cameron Lamb. We'll play our calendar at the midpoint of the hour. Next, host Craig Lubo and his guest, Alan Rostrom, will discuss recent trends in constitutional law and criminal defense cases decided since 2022. Alan Rostrom is a constitutional law expert who teaches at UMKC School of Law. He's been a guest on Jaws of Justice before. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning. This is Pat Bartholomew. This morning, we're talking about an all, unfortunately, all too familiar sequence of events. An African-American is shot by the Kansas City Police Department with no probable cause. And the police and the prosecuting attorneys see no need for further investigation. Returning personnel involved in this situation to duty very soon after this incident happened in December of 2019. This is the story of Cameron Lamb talking to, hopefully, Cheryl Ferguson. We're I am here, Pat. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I, we're on the air, Cheryl. And I'm going to ask you to jump in and talk about Cameron Lamb. Who was he? Why is this such a terrible, difficult time for his family? And who is going to be the father to his three children? Cameron had a middle son, Sincere, um, that actually had asked the question um, right around before the funeral, um, how long will my dad be dead? So, yeah, that's a great question of who's going to be the father now. But uh, Cameron had three sons, Cameron, Cameron, and Sincere. Actually, Sincere is the middle child. Um, and Sincere was being raised by Cameron. So Cameron was a father that was really taking care of his own. Um, he was a mechanic that just loved to tinker with things. He would love to figure out ways to work on cars, and he hated to be stumped. So he'd always have a network of people he could call to get help to make sure that he could get that car repair completed successfully. Um, and 
in that he just was so loving. There was a story that I found out after his passing that there was two women that were stuck on the highway, um, had been waiting two hours for their family to show up. And here comes Cameron with three boys in the car, told his kids to be calm and be good, which they did the entire time. The woman actually let us know um, that Cameron took them to where they needed to go when he couldn't fix the car on the side of the road. And then to help them avoid getting the car impounded, went back the next day and towed. And she actually said that we can't pay you. He said that's fine. So she did everything she could to recommend people to him for car repairs after that, just because that's the giving person he was. Yes, exactly. Let's talk about what happened on December 3rd, 2019. Can you kind of shape what happened that day for our listeners? Yeah, I can shape it um, differently than the police narrative has given out. So basically what started, and and I've said from the beginning, we're not professing that Cameron was a a saint. Um, He actually had had an argument with his girlfriend on that day. When she took off, he took off after. And that's what started the helicopter presence, which we have no idea why the helicopters were already surveying the east side. I hear hear after the fact it's done frequently. Um, But the helicopters were actually navigating his travel. So, yes, he was speeding through residential streets. Yes, he did potentially run a red light. I don't have anything that proves that other than their narrative. Um, But when he got close to home, he left that whole situation. So the problem was gone. He went home. He pulled in, backed into his driveway, backed into his garage, which is not something you can do at a I'm trying to run and hide type scenario. Um, So after he had got into his his property, then police show up undercover, um, and they already approached the front of the house with guns drawn. Um, they went around to the back after the homeowner had let them know, I guess, where camera was. I'm not really sure how that transpired. Um, but then a few minutes later, Cameron was no more. Um, and in that, I don't necessarily know he was no more because they kept the ambulance from coming onto the scene to even treat him for at least 45 minutes. There was a man who said that Cameron lit his cigarette um, for him as he was coming home. And the man said his cigarette was still burning by the time that they had shot and killed him. So is it fair to say that Cameron didn't really pose a risk to the police? Is that a fair assessment of the situation? Not at all. I mean, by the time they showed up, he was in his own, minding his own business. And as um, I understand it, he he did have a gun, but he had a license to carry the weapon? That is correct. Um, so Cameron was not a felon. He definitely did legally own his firearm. Um, the thing that I have a problem with in the narrative that the police have given is that Cameron was right-handed. He actually had a piece of his index finger missing from his left hand. So not only was he not predominant in his left hand, but he also had an injury that would not have necessarily made that a hand that you would have pointed a weapon in to shoot at someone that, to me, was already posing a threat to you because they came at him with guns already drawn. And you had mentioned to me that um, after after this happened, and I, I presume Cameron was taken away in an ambulance, that the family was not contacted about what had happened for approximately eight hours. That is correct. They already knew what happened. Um, After the initial shooting, there's other family members that live on the block. Um, So one of the sisters was actually down by the house, which she was brought in for questioning. She had nothing to do with what happened. Um, So 
the the network of people in the community had already let it be known to the family what had happened, but the police didn't show up until 8.30. Um, they actually were delayed because they didn't have a black minister available. Which, as you pointed out to me, really was not a, a, an issue with this family. That they are, that, you know, that they didn't I'm come sorry, and talk to the family. It shouldn't be an issue with anyone. I mean, when it comes to the nature of losing someone's life, or even if they hadn't killed Cameron and Cameron was in the hospital, we could care less if they're green, black, purple, gray, or tan. Tell us. Right, be exactly. Front, be honest. You had mentioned to me that you thought that one of the things that was going on that day was that there, in fact, was uh, another situation that the police were really following and that you had suggested that this might have been a case of mistaken identity. Do you remember well, talking about that? There was something else. There was another case that they were actually involved with. And it's apparent from the recording that was made with the police that there they were, in fact, there was something else, They another reason that they were up in the air that really didn't have anything to do with Cameron. They actually, the very next day, arrested a man that was about 20 years Cameron Sr. Um, with very short dreadlocks, similar to the type that Cameron had, um, beard kind of grown in, similar to the way that Cameron's beard was grown in. And it just has to lead you to question with all of that action and Cameron not being a violent person. Um, if you if you actually got to know him, I actually have made comments in the past. Had they done polluted, uh, community policing, they would have probably been Cameron's friend. Cameron would have probably helped to work on their cars. They would have had a different type of relationship. Right. So I don't think that they would have taken that action had they known Cameron. I really don't think that that's who they were intending on being in the in the home when they shot and killed him. His uh, And actually, you were saying his family wasn't in the house. They weren't actually his, his immediate family. Is that under, my understanding? That's the reason they didn't, they weren't on the property with Cameron. That's correct. They weren't there at the time that it happened. Okay. Well, and so, so basically, um, what happened after this? They... There was an investigation um, by the police, and as I understand it, possibly the prosecuting attorney. What happened after this case? That was in December 3rd. That was December 3rd. What what happened after that? Well, December 3rd, Cameron was killed. December 12th, the officer that shot and killed him was already back on the force. That's by the own admission of Chief of Police, um, uh, Chief Smith. And I actually questioned him about, uh, to me, I don't think mentally that I would trust an officer that feels comfortable going back on live duty nine days after killing someone. And so was this also investigated by the prosecuting attorney as well? They still have the case at this time, and they really haven't done any further action. So there's always that, you know, we hear in the laws that, that a criminal has a right to a speedy trial, but when the criminal potentially is the police, it's always drawn out long, long time. Ryan Stokes' case is seven years old and still hasn't been finalized. Right. And so so basically, um, there was clearly some public reaction to this. Um, I don't know if it was in December. The interesting thing is there's still press on the case. At now, as, as late as March, they were still talking about this case. So... 
someone was keeping the case alive. Uh, it's it's. I mean, I think that that's pretty amazing that the public is still following the case. There's still press being, you know, talked about that the case is still live. Absolutely. The March incident that you're speaking of, um, actually, Gwen Grant with the Urban League had a two-week, um, two-part session um, killed by the police that could happen to you. Um, in the first meeting, um, they actually had um, both Cameron and Ryan Stokes' family's attorneys there to speak a little bit about the case and give some background information. Um, the following week, there were a few attorneys from the um, Board of Attorneys um, that basically were just having a panel to help us know our rights, knowing the Office of Citizens' complaints. Um, but in that action with that first week on March 5th, um, yes, the press was in attendance. And, and yes, the family is, is like, when I go to the police commissioner's meeting, I've not gone alone at all. Um, the only time that I was alone was in COVID-19 in April, but every other time that I've been there, the family's there with me. They do not want this to be quiet. They definitely want community input to make sure that we know where there's certain things that we want. Um, for example, body cams. And just in the meeting from, from April, they've actually, Chief Smith has said that it's not an important factor. He did not include it in the budget. And that was in the midst of the of two of the commissioners speaking up that saying, well, the community wants it, so it needs to happen. Yes, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they did not have body cams yet. So that is still an issue that hasn't been solved by the police department or the Nor Board of, a board of Police to. Commissioners. Yeah, the commissioners do, but the chief doesn't. So that's kind of why the local control is still an argument of what needs to happen, of the dynamic of how the police forces ran. Well, that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that that was still an issue that was not, that really hadn't been settled in this community, that the police were not wearing body cams. That's not a requirement. I don't even know if officers have to put them on. There might be a handful that have them, but for the most part, they're speaking of technical issues and wanting to make sure that they technically work. But if all of these other, um, you know, cities throughout the country can make it technically work, I don't see where it should be that hard. Yeah, that's interesting. Given all the fact that, you know, this, it almost seems like there's, they've got at least two to three years worth of evidence of the fact that body cams really are necessary because the public wants to know what happens at incidences that involve police shootings. And, and truthfully, it's also a protection to them as well. Absolutely. So if, if they're doing a, a good shoot, which I hate that term, that's a hunting term, but that's what they call it. If they do a good shoot, you should want proof that you did everything right. Yeah, that's a terrible expression. I had never heard that until you said that on the phone the other day. A good shoot is described as successful shoot. I mean, what does that mean exactly? They'll use it in terminology of a good shoot, meaning that they were justified in pulling the trigger, that they that the actions taken were the right cause to take um, in, in that kind of effort. Um, the meeting from March 12th with the kill by the police, it could happen to you. One of the things one of the attorneys brought up is that a lot of times you can look at the actions that take place in any instant incident. Most times the, the officer that shoots to kill is not the only one there. Um, so there was an incident that happened with the FBI and the police involved. Um, I believe it was in February um, that all officers had drawn their guns. All officers had fired. And she said, when something of that nature happens, you know that that's the actual proper steps to take because everyone did it. 
But when we have Ryan Stokes, when we have Terrence Bridges, when we have Cameron Lamb, only one officer shot, kind of makes you wonder, why is it only that one officer feels the need to use deadly force? So clearly there was a difference in police narratives between what the public was was given as information about this killing and actually what the police narrative was that was put out almost immediately. Absolutely. They gave a narrative up until the point that they would seem like they had done anything wrong. And I've questioned them about that. You're saying that you can't talk about it, but yet and still you have a narrative up until you don't really talk about you know, what happened once they arrived at the house, that narrative is not published at all. But they give the narrative of Cameron's driving, which basically is going to paint him in a bad picture. But if by the time you killed him, he was in his home and he was a traffic threat, since when do undercovers show up for a traffic violation? Right. In other words, there was no probable cause for them to be on the property um, which seems to be part of uh, the case that is being filed. There, there was no real reason for them to be on the property to have their guns drawn. And uh, as as an expert on police chases was saying, that you know, there's a police chase. There's an appropriateness for a police chase if there's a probable cause for a crime. There's been a a murder, there's been a rape, there's been a bank robbery, there's got to be some reason that the police are chasing someone. That's that's an ongoing, an ongoing issue that's being looked at by a lot of people is the, particularly given the dangerousness that we know of police chases. Right, and it's April 20th, and there still hasn't been a probable cause statement released. So we're, what, five months later? Yeah, so I, I think, though, that it's... Uh, you know, the idea, one of the things that Lee Merritt, the attorney, and we'll talk more about Lee Merritt with this case, who's a nationally known civil rights lawyer, is that there's there there's always this issue of starting a narrative that basically looks the makes the victim look bad. And so that they can justify, you know, that they were, in fact, being uh there was a there was a risk to the police officers when in fact they were really the ones who you know presented the risk they were the ones who basically set up the hazard and so that that to me is kind of interesting that it's almost nationally accepted that the first thing the police will do is make the victim look bad all the time i've actually jokingly spoken with a few people that i know that kind of know the law um and it's hard to do because of the the right to free speech, um, but there is a narrative that is always given about the black community, even for the case that Lee Merritt is more popularly known for, and that's the Amber Geiger case. Um, when when uh, Jean Botham was killed in his own home eating ice cream, they had to bring up the fact that he had marijuana in his system. Um, the Atiana Jefferson, when she was killed um, in her own home, shot through the window, they brought up the fact she had a gun in her home. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's great to know that there are people that are really looking at the issues that clearly are used to justify police killings. And what I recently did was looked up the FBI in the, in the Uniform Crime Report to see how many police killings there were just last year. And they were 1,099 killings by police officers in the United States. And of course, you know, the police call them justified homicides. It's, it's again, it's people like you that want to keep these issues alive. It's, uh, you know, that's what it takes. It takes social action. It takes the public coming together and saying, you know, this has got to stop. 
And so, you know, I it's it's uh, it's clearly uh, become a kind of an epidemic in the country, police shootings. Um, too often, and, and again, the narrative actually also taints to where it helps to keep continue to spread the fear. So, for some reason, there seems to be a thought that melanin is a is a weapon, um, and melanin is the thing that makes our skin dark. So, for some reason, it's just commonly talked about that it's just to hear the narrative of a black man with a gun. Automatically, it feels like if the if they say that that they feel like the shooting is justified. Right. Um, so like Philando Castile, when he was a licensed concealed and carry, and he let the officer know, this is what I have. And the officer asked him to make motion and then shot and killed him when he did. Right. You're talking about the case in the in Minnesota where Correct. a young man was shot in his car and it was filmed by his friend that was in the car. That, of course, went international. It went viral, as they say, because it was pretty outlandish. That police officer actually was charged with manslaughter, and then the case was dismissed later. So that that was uh, that was a particularly egregious situation. As I understand, that's when your 30-day vigil uh, three years ago started at the police station. It was over yeah, the Philando Castile case. That one, and then right before him was uh, Alton Sterling. So, yes, it was just kind of uh, something that actually was started by Kevin Roberson. Um, and I really only showed up the first day that he did it to bring them water, and somehow I ended up joining forces with him. And, um, yeah, it was kind of like we have to stop it. And a few days in, I was like, well, maybe instead of trying to make them seem as the enemy, I, I said, well, maybe we can work on embracing them and becoming friends with them because if they're your friend, they won't kill you. Um, so I actually started a, a photog um, starting day five of our protest. We've been replaying our show from April 2020 when host Pat Bartholomew spoke with Cheryl Ferguson. Cheryl Ferguson has been talking about Cameron Lamb. He was a friend to her family, loved by his family, and a loving father to his children. On December 3, 2019, Kansas City police shot and killed Cameron Lamb, a black male, in his own backyard. At the time of Pat's interview with Cheryl Ferguson, little was known except the fact Cameron was in his own backyard. Police entered his yard. They were plainclothes detectives on a dark night, and so Cameron Lamb may have suspected they were intruders on his property. On November 19, 2021, Kansas City, Missouri Police Detective DeVolcaner was convicted in the shooting death of Cameron Lamb, and Eric DeVolcaner was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and armed criminal action in a bench trial before a Jackson County, Missouri judge. The judge found guilt because the police were the initial aggressors and were not acting in self-defense. The police had no warrant, no permission to be on the private property, and they were not making an arrest. The police did not have exigent circumstances because their chase of Lamb's vehicle had ended. The police engaged Cameron Lamb, ultimately shooting and killing him with no consideration of risks associated with their conduct. They took action that escalated a situation that had already de-escalated, and their actions exacerbated the risk. Jean Peters Baker, the district attorney of Jackson County, Missouri, said she saw a Fourth Amendment constitutional violation, and by that she might have meant it was an unreasonable search. Cameron C.D. Lamb's death at the hands of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, his friends, family, and his community have shown support.
They say they will not tolerate any defamation of their beloved. Cameron Lamb's life mattered. We offer our sincere condolences. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Join KKFI on November 2nd at the Drexel Hall at the Kansas City Irish Center for Music Unites, featuring Calvin Arsenia and Friendly Thieves. Music Unites, a benefit for KKFI, brings together a community for a special night of music. Doors open at 7.30. The concert starts at 8. Go to kkfi.org to purchase tickets and learn more. Thanks for listening to KKFI. We are now adding new content to our social media sites every day. So be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM. Thanks for supporting this community radio station since 1988. Now the calendar for the week of October 30th. Thursday, November 2nd, 6 p.m. at the Maddie Road Center at 148 North Topping Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. Corey's Network Grief to Relief Seminar discusses investigations. You can find more information on Facebook at Corey's Network. Thursday, November 2nd, 6 to 9 p.m. at Kansas City, Missouri Municipal Auditorium, Lower Exhibition Hall, is Moore Square's 18th Annual Interfaith Inspirational Revival. Music by Lee Langston, keynote address by Dr. Gregory Ellison, and the honoring of Equity Partners of 2023, Lee Barnes and Randy Lopez. Tickets are on sale at moresquare.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. My name is Terry reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page, as well as in this episode description on the Jaws of Justice Radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. We'll now return to our program. Please stay tuned to hear host Craig Lubo speak with Alan Rostrom. Okay, thank you for joining us. This is Craig Lubo, and as Terry said, my guest today is Alan Rostron. Alan is a professor at UMKC Law School. He's been teaching there for 20 years, constitutional law and tort law. And prior to that, he was a lawyer for a large firm in New York City, and then a lawyer at the Brady Center, 
to prevent gun violence in Washington, D.C. We are going to be talking about uh, doing an update. He was here back, I think, in December. And we're going to do an update on what the Supreme Court is up to these days. Um, they just started a new session a few weeks ago, and what cases they are likely to be hearing, and some recent decisions as well that has been handed down since last time he was here. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Okay, um, the let's start with because one it was big in the spring, the student loan case, and that's Biden versus Nebraska, and that's the case that was brought to try to stop the Biden administration from um, providing re student relief to people on student loans. So tell us about that, please. It was an important case because there was so much money involved. There were you know, hundreds of billions of dollars at stake. The uh, repayment of student loans and the accrual of interest on them had been uh, postponed during the COVID pandemic, so people didn't have to repay their loans, and it was just kind of put on hold. But that was going to come to an end, and people would have to start paying again. And the Biden administration felt that too many people had too much of a, of a burden of, of debt from their student loans and wanted to uh, give them some relief from that. So they came up with a proposal where um, people would be able to uh, have some of their debt waived and not have to pay it back. But this is something that the Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional because um, it wasn't really authorized by Congress sufficient, with sufficient precision, at least in the view of the Supreme Court. In other words, the Congress has the legislative authority, obviously, and the president and the agencies that are in the executive branch have a lot of discretion to implement them, uh, but there wasn't statutory authority that the Supreme Court thought was sufficient for this. They were relying on a statute that was enacted back after the 2001 terrorism, the 9-11 terrorism, which said the Secretary of Education had power to respond to a national emergency and waive or modify the rules concerning student loans. And so that was really the key language, waive or modify. And the Biden administration said, well, we're just, we're waiving things, we're modifying things. And the Supreme Court said, you know, on such a big, important issue, I, I think when they said modify, I thought that, I think they meant like just to make more minor adjustments, not to relieve, you know, $400 billion worth of debt. And so they, they basically wound up saying, if Congress wants to give an ex a, a very important a dose of authority to an agency or to the president like this, they'd have to be more clear about it. Okay. Let's jump to uh, Merle, yeah, I hope I'm saying that right, versus Michigan, mm -hmm. and Moore versus Harper. Those are cases that dealt with election laws and voting. Yeah. And the Supreme Court actually uh, struck down the Alabama case. So the good news is there is at least they have not struck down the Voting Rights Act, which looked like they might do it a couple of years ago. Right. So tell us about those right. two cases. Well, those are two cases that I think are interesting and important for the reasons you suggested. One is they do have to do with voting in elections, and obviously that's a big deal today. The nation's pretty divided between the major parties, and so a lot of elections are very close. Congress is very divided. 
Uh, and so elections are just a big deal. And there's been obviously controversy about them in, in recent years about how voting works and whether it's fair and accurate and all that sort of thing. And so these were these were interesting issues and they were somewhat surprised. The Supreme Court is relatively conservative these days. Uh, and yet these were cases that sort of in some sense came out the other way. So they kind of surprised people. The Moore versus Harper case, it was a pretty ambitious claim that was being made. And so even for a, a pretty su conservative Supreme Court like we have now, this one went too far for some of the conservative justices like John Roberts and, and Brett Kavanaugh. This was a, basically a claim that would have said state legislatures just have complete authority over federal elections and how they're run. We have federal elections every two years. We elect people for Congress and the Senate and uh, for president every four years. Uh, but the elections are run by the states, like Missouri runs the, along with its state offices elections, they run the federal election as well for Missouri. Kansas runs the Kansas federal election. So it's, and it's always been sort of assumed that when the states run that, that, it, that there's a role for the state legislature in, in determining the manner in which the election occurs, like, you know, how do you, how exactly does the, the what kind of voting do you have? Is it a paper ballot or a machine or whatever? All those details. When are the polls open? Where are the polls? So there's a lot to be done by the legislature, but there's always been an assumption in the past that, well, the, the, you know, the governor of the state might have some role in, in determining what the legislation would be, but also the state courts. You could have legal issues that would arise about interpreting the election laws or about whether they might comply or, with or violate the state constitution. There's always sort of an assumption that the, each branch of the state government might have some role in determining how the federal elections are run. But there was an argument that's been made that, nope, it should just be the legislature. Uh, the constitutional language that talks about the states having authority over elections actually uses the term legislature. It says the legislature will determine how the congressional elections are done or the legislature will determine how the presidential election is conducted in each state. So it says the legislature. And if you took that very, very literally, you could say that means it's up to the legislature alone and entirely. So this is known as the independent state legislature theory, meaning the legislature of each state would determine how the election goes, and, and essentially a court could not do anything about that. So, you know, whether it was, if it was, there was gerrymandering, there could not be a, a claim about that uh, brought to a state court. Or if, uh, you know, often we'll see these issues, even minor things, like there'll be a problem with the voting machines, and a judge will say, oh, we're going to keep the polls open an extra two hours because there was a, a problem with the machines or whatever. And no, nope, courts could no longer do that. So this would have been a big deal. It would have really undercut the ability of state courts to intervene and regulate what goes on in elections. And this, again, some of the justices would have done that, but the majority, a couple of the conservatives basically kind of joined up with the liberal minority to uh, on the court to uh, decide they didn't want to go that far. And you mentioned the Merrill versus Merrigan case as well. That one is uh, a gerrymandering case. Gerrymandering, I feel like, used to be a very obscure topic. Now it's, it's in the news quite a bit. And the, sometimes you have political gerrymandering where they're trying to, one party is trying to gain an advantage. But the claim in Alabama in the Merrill versus uh, uh, Merrigan case was about racial gerrymandering. It was the idea that Alabama has, um, you know, there's an, obviously the history of a lot of racial issues with voting in Alabama, and it remains very divided along r racial lines today. And... Um, in Alabama, I think they were making seven uh, districts for the U.S. House of Representatives, and they made one district that had a majority of black voters. So because of the way voting goes, there'd be a pretty good chance. Well, at least black voters would have a significant influence on the outcome, and there's probably a pretty good chance that a Democrat might win that district. 
uh, and that has been the case. Uh, but that an argument was made, a claim was made, that in fact there's enough black voters in Alabama that they could easily make two majority minority districts, two districts out of the seven where a minority, uh, a majority of the voters would be uh, black voters. And so that went up to, and the Alabama legislature didn't want to do that. So that went up to the Supreme Court, and it was, again, as you said, under the Voting Rights Act, and the Supreme Court has really cut back on the Voting Rights Act and, and negated some aspects of it in recent years, and I think a lot of people expected that to happen again. But surprisingly, the Supreme Court went the other way. They ruled against the state of Alabama and in favor of the challengers who were saying that there was racial discrimination in the way, probably racial discrimination in the way those districts were gone up. And, and the Alabama legislature even felt so confident about its position, it refused to, to really comply with what the Supreme Court had ordered. They were essentially ordered to create a second majority black district, and they, were, they failed to do so, and the Supreme Court, uh, uh, it had to work its way up to the Supreme Court again, and they said, look, we're, we really are, we really mean it, you have to do this. And they won that case based on racial dis gerrymandering. Yeah. Is there, would the Voters' Rights Act um, do anything to prevent political gerrymandering if it can be shown that's not racial? No. So these days, racial gerrymandering is still uh, uh, something that states have to be careful about. They, if they engage in racial gerrymandering, that's a violation of the Voting Rights Act and of the Equal Protection Clause itself. Political gerrymandering in most states is now is just permissible. The Supreme Court a couple of years ago had the opportunity to address political gerrymandering, like where one of the parties is trying to draw up the lines in a way that gives them an, an advantage. Uh, they had an opportunity to address that and try to come up with some kind of standards that would limit extremely partisan gerrymandering, but they said, nope, we're not going to. They decided that it's really not a question that the federal courts could do anything about. They said, we just... We haven't been able to figure out a way to draw the line and separate separate permissible from impermissible uh, dis district uh, uh, drawing, and so they, they, they what, the real problem is all gerrymandering, all all political uh, district creation is somewhat political, and so the question is when does it cross the line? It's a matter of degree. When does it go too far and become uh, impermissible? And they said we can't really figure that out, so we're going to say that it's just not a not a justiciable issue that courts can even address. So these days, if you want to address political gerrymandering, you'd have to do it at the state level. Okay. So the state states, courts would still have jurisdiction. State courts might be able to decide the, that okay. it violates the state constitution or people in some states, people have um, put in measures where they'll do the districts in a, in a non-political way. All right. And related to gerrymandering, you've got down there's uh, Alexander versus South Carolina which has not been um, decided yet, but is, have they decided that they will take that case? Yes, they okay. have, and so uh, that will be decided by the Supreme Court sometime this year, and it's very related to those issues that, that came up in Alabama, except this time it's about South Carolina. You know, all this comes up because every 10 years after the census, the, the population of states changes and the number of, of uh, people in each district changes, and so they have to adjust the districts. And so this is all coming in the wake of the 2020 census. South Carolina, when they redid their districting after the last census, they moved, I think it was about 30,000 or 40,000 black voters from one district that they had been into another. These are uh, voters in the Charleston area. It was a largely black areas uh, uh, there, and they were moved from one district to another. And the claim was that it was done to, to reduce their the impact of their voting. They were moved into, moved into another district that was more safely Republican. Uh, and uh, so 
it was going to it was going to reduce reduce the likelihood that they would have a significant impact on the outcome of the the elections in the district in which they were in. And so they claim, well, this is racial gerrymandering. We believe the legislature of South Carolina is deliberately drawing the lines in a way that moves people around based on their race. And the legislature said, no, it's not. This is not a racial thing. It's just a political thing. We're not moving these voters because they're predominantly uh, black voters. We're doing it because they're Democrats. We want the Republican Party to be more successful in the, in the, uh, in the elections, and we're trying to draw the map this way. And the Supreme Court has said that that is permissible. And so the, the difficult thing the Supreme Court have, will have to decide is how do you tell when the districting has racial motivations versus merely political motivations? And that's difficult to discern sometimes because there are racial patterns in voting, right? The uh, support among black voters is higher overall in, in general for the Democratic Party than it is for the Republican Party. And so if you see them doing something which seems to be based on, um, could be based on race, but it could be based on politics. How do you know which one it is? Okay. <clears throat> um, the free speech, I want to turn to that, mm -hmm. and specifically relating to LGBT issues. Yeah. Um, you've got down 303 Creative LLC versus Alanis. Yeah. And before I have you tell about that, so there's been two major cases that I'm aware of, probably more. One involved um, whether or not Colorado could require um, a baker to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. And I believe they decided one involving floral arrangements. Yeah. So if you can tell us about those two and what's coming down the pike for the future. Sure. There have been a lot of cases around the country. There are some organizations in particular that uh, bring these kinds of cases, uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, for example. Uh, and so the big one that the Supreme Court had you mentioned, there was one about cake baking. Uh, it was called Masterpiece. It was from Colorado. And it was, it was about a bakery, and they uh, did not want to be obligated to make cakes for same-sex marriages. They said that on religious grounds they had objections to those marriages and therefore they would make cakes for anybody but they didn't want to make a wedding cake for someone who was having a same-sex marriage. And in that case, the Supreme Court, and so then the question was, does, could, could Colorado find them to be in violation of the state's anti-discrimination laws because they're discriminating against uh, certain customers based on sexual orientation. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the bakery, but on somewhat narrow grounds. The, some of the government officials involved in that case at the uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission said things during the proceedings that were perceived as being hostile to religious beliefs, uh, that people sort of denigrating the idea that you'd use religious faith as a justification for this kind of thing. And so the Supreme Court really based it on that. They said you can't have the government being hostile to people's religious beliefs. So because of those comments being made, they resolved it that way. There's lots of other cases around the country about different things, like you said, about all kinds of people who provide different goods and services for weddings. And the big one that came back to the Supreme Court last year was about someone who does websites, does website design, and uh, said that she didn't want to do work for, to be obligated to do work for same-sex marriages. Uh, but that could then put her in violation of Colorado's non-discrimination laws. And the Supreme Court last year ruled in her, last uh, June, ruled in her favor. 
and really did so. There were religious aspects to the case. She said that's why she didn't want to do this work. Let me ask you a quick question on that. The When they decided that, when this was brought, she, she, nobody had sued her for refusing to give her uh, made a claim of that anti-discrimination. That's that one correct? of the strange things about that case is um, – some of the claims that have been brought about this, it's the, some of the organizations that are bringing these cases seem to be stretching pretty far to create, to put people in the situation where they will purport to be providing services for weddings. They're, they're, they have some people, for example, who will, they'll, they'll have as litigants in these cases and they'll say, oh, I'm a wedding photographer. They haven't really been doing wedding photography. They've just sort of set up a, seem to have been set up just to bring these kinds of, of lawsuits. And for 303 Creative, this person really was in the business of doing website design, but hadn't been asked to do anything for a same-sex wedding. And then actually the day after the lawsuit was filed, they purported to receive an email from someone, from a man, who wanted wanted this business to provide services for an upcoming same-sex wedding. And so that was a part of the evidence in the case. Well, I have been asked. I don't want to do it. So it's kind of made it seem like kind of a real issue. And then much later, some journalists contacted the person whose name was on the email, and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't send that message. Uh, I'm, I'm already married, and I'm in, a, in an opposite-sex marriage, so that's not even an issue for me, and I don't know how I, my name got involved in this at all. So there was something a little suspicious going on there. Nobody knows who, who fraudulently made that email, but somebody did. Uh, and so that was a little bit questionable, but that was after the Supreme Court had already decided in favor of the website designer, and they weren't going to go back and change that after the fact. So, and they really based it on freedom of speech. They said, you know, you, you, we're not supposed to be compelled to say things we don't want to say, and this goes all the way back to cases about like the flag salute and children who were Jehovah's Witnesses and. It was against their religion to salute the flag. And the Supreme Court said, look, we can't make people say things they don't want to say. And they applied that in this case. But it is tough because you have a conflict between freedom of speech, which most people really do like, but also not having discrimination, which seems like a really valuable interest as well. At one point, I think in one of the cases I had read that at least one of the justices drew a distinction between if they're having to create the message, it's different perhaps than if they're just making the cake, for instance, but they're not creating a message or anything that would violate their religious yeah, beliefs. Yeah, I think this decision, so again, they ruled in favor of the, the website designer, and I think this will lead to difficult issues in the future. One is what exactly kinds of services will it cover? Like what's creative enough and expressive enough to be covered? I don't think it will cover everything. I mean, what if you, what if it wasn't a cake that, what if you were making, you know, just the, you were the caterer and you're providing, you know, steak or something. Would that be covered? Is there creativity in your cooking or whatever? So that's one issue. The other is I don't, I, it's really unclear whether their decision would apply, for example, if someone objected to uh, supporting or providing services for a wedding on other grounds. What if someone said, I'm, I'm, I have religious objections or other objections to uh, an interracial marriage, and therefore I don't want to provide uh, services for an interracial or, an in, or a cross-religious marriage or whatever. Do they have a constitutional right to opt out of providing services? I mean, can they engage in racial discrimination and be protected by their by their constitutional rights? That will have to be determined. And if a case like that were ever to make it to the Supreme Court, 
Justice Thomas would sure have a dilemma. Well, that's true. He's <laughs> a person who has an interracial marriage. <laughs> okay. Um, we just have a few minutes left. The, the Let's talk about the tech industry since that's mm -hmm. a lot of cases coming down with, relating to that. Yeah, there are. You know, the really big one is about the fact there, there's a widespread sense that some tech company and their platforms, social media platforms, things like Facebook or YouTube or that sort of thing, uh, may have some political biases in the way they conduct things. This is definitely a strongly held belief for many conservative Republican people. Uh, and so one way to go about that is you could try to sue them and you could say, oh, you know, I'm being discriminated against by Facebook. They're not permitting my content. They're engaging in some kind of political censorship or favoritism. But that's tough because you can't really sue a private business like Facebook or these kinds of things. I mean, if they're, they're, they're a private business and they're not the government. And so you, you don't have constitutional rights that apply to them. So rather than trying to sue them, one of the approaches that's been used is to try to go to state legislatures, particularly in states that are that would be sympathetic to these arguments, like Texas or Florida, and they've gotten them to enact statutes that prohibit political discrimination by tech companies. So it would become illegal for, let's say, Facebook, for example, to use that as an example. If they were engaging in some kind of discrimination, it would become a violation of state law, and they could be held liable, and they could be sued for this. The And so the those laws have been enacted, and the tech companies then have, have taken it to the Supreme Court, and they say this is violating their freedom of speech. They say, you know, we're, we're, when we regulate the content of our platforms, that's expressing our beliefs and values. And so, you know, if we, like if we don't want racist speech on our website, we should be able to keep it off. And if we were forced to have it on there, it would be a violation of our freedom of speech. So there's an, it's a really difficult freedom of speech issue um, that will come up. The, the counter argument is that no, is, is basically that these tech companies have so much power now and they're such an important avenue for speech that if they aren't open and access to everybody on an equal basis, that will, that will wind up censoring some viewpoints so much. So it's really difficult. It's, it's sort of like, you know, you could, have, you could have had similar issues in the pre-internet era just with newspapers. Like what if a newspaper wants to publish certain things but not others. Is that their freedom to do that? Or do you have a right to get something in the newspaper so that all views are represented? All right. One issue which we did not have time for, but it's a huge issue, is gun regulations. And I saved that because what I am plan to do is at some point after the first of the year is do a show on gun violence with a panel, and I will invite you to be on that show. Great. Thank you. Uh, so for those who have just joined us, we've been talking to Alan Rostron. This is Craig Lubo, and we've been talking about constitutional issues in front of the Supreme Court. Thank you for being with us. You are now listening to Dr. Seneca's topical poem of the week. Welcome to another edition of Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. I am poet, educator, and recording artist Seneca Alex Chizoba Lofton. Let me tell you something. I am sick and tired of talking about police brutality, but once again, I find myself sharpening words in order to dive into this subject.
Now let's talk about Bakaya Bryant. Since law enforcement has had a pattern of using excessive force in the black community, the shooting of Makaya Bryant has to be investigated. Police officers do not get the benefit of the doubt. Was this a case of excessive force or was it justified? However, that's not the topic of this commentary. All of the adults that stood in the driveway, all of the adults waving cameras and cheering all of these girls on, and all of the adults participating in the violence without thinking about any of the consequences should be investigated as well. That foster home needs to be investigated as well. It is absolutely insane to me that nobody intervened to de-escalate the situation. Do you mean to tell me that nobody in Micaiah Bryant's immediate environment thought it was a good idea to try and calm her down? How many missed opportunities were there? I'm not sure when the knife entered the scene. Was there an opportunity to prevent her from getting the knife? Did she already have it on her body or did she go back into the house to retrieve it? Was the girl defending herself? These are the questions I have, folks, and hopefully an investigation gets to the bottom of this. What were the adults in the driveway doing? Why are people always standing around with cameras? Is this the new activism? To get a poppin' timeline, go viral so you can fix your broken self-esteem? People would rather film black trauma than get involved. Now, don't get me wrong. Activists who think like advocates and film situations with the intent of distributing the recordings for the purposes of exposing corrupt police officers are not the people I'm talking about. These people have different agendas. However, taking pictures and posting videos on dry timelines because you need attention instead of preventing young people from making mistakes has to stop. Oh, I spit hot fire today, people. We need to do better. I watched the video at least 12 times. Everywhere that I looked and focused my energy, I could smell the stench of failure. We should be better than this. How long have we been studying the brains of police officers? How long have we been studying the tactics of police officers? Yet we continue to use the same methods to address the problem, expecting different results. Yet we still haven't adjusted our behaviors in our communities. It is absolutely hilarious to see the various opinions on social media, speculating if the cops should have shot a warning shot into the air, or if he should have tried to wound her in the leg. When have you seen that accomplished? We have seen them talk down white folks and mass shooters. Yes, there is a case to be made, but every case is different. Have we not been watching police officers fire their weapons over for the past, what, 200 years? This is not simply a case of a cop showing up to be a cop, but that's what happened. The black community needs to invest in protecting itself. I'm talking about a radical cultural shift that keeps cops out of our communities and neighborhoods. However, we do not need to give them the ammunition to kill our children. When is enough enough? Check out the poem, Sick and Tired of Being Sick and Tired. You are now listening to Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. Sick and tired of hearing the shots and the cries and the silly rationales on social media graveyards. Don't upset the feed. Please don't get in the way of free speech or free ignorance. Wanna be, never gonna be revolutionaries that fight with thumbs. Too clueless to understand their roles in the dysfunction. They are trapped in a concrete maze, hoping to squeeze the blood out of dreams, hoping to repair their broken self-esteem. They react, react, 
react, move on, exploiting their own people. Another child is shot and tempers create hashtags and trends and hollow reasons to chase ambulances to chase ambulances they chase ambulances instead of connecting people at frequencies or protecting communities i am sick and tired of reactions that never produce progress cutting through noise landing in a dead paradise where nothing grows they resist and fall asleep until headlines flash across their cell phone screens Tune in next week for another episode of Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. For more information on this show, make sure to visit www.officialseneca.com. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 